Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for How the Jewish Awakening May Transform American Religion with Rabbi Joshua Stanton. I want to thank our partners, HEA in Denver, for co-sponsoring this event today. Rabbi Joshua Stanton is spiritual co-leader of East End Temple and director of leadership at CLAL, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, where he focuses on questions of religious pluralism in the United States and Israel. He likewise serves on the board of trustees of the Interfaith America, the leading interfaith organization in America, and on the Board of Governors of the International Jewish Committee on Interreligious Consultations, which presides over Jewish-Christian relations with the Vatican and World Council of Churches. You may have already seen Rabbi Stanton on CNN or in a documentary film, or read about him in syndicated media, publications, and articles that have appeared in 10 languages. Rabbi Stanton, thank you for joining us. It is so wonderful to be with you. It's great to see some familiar faces and some that are less familiar. And it feels like a very opportune time to uh, start with a text that is directly connected to Tisha B'Av, not the happiest of occasions, but is actually filled with mirth and laughter. And I think it provides a helpful framing for our conversation about the fact that a lot is changing in the Jewish world, and there is a sense of loss, but the future is extraordinarily bright, and we seldom tell that story. So I want to bless and then start with some Torah discussion and then delve into questions of the Jewish awakening using Rabbi Akiva and his uh, colleagues, his sages, as the way in. So let's bless. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kedishanu b'gmetzvotah v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Thank you, God, for commanding us to grapple with words of Torah, not necessarily to understand them perfectly. And I put a link to Safaria, if you so choose, uh, down below. But I'm also going to read this aloud, give you my take on it, and then let's bat around some ideas, because I think there is so, so much to be derived from this particular passage. So this is from Tractate Makot 24a, and it is after the destruction of the Second Temple, which is why it is apropos of Tisha B'Av, which we're going to be commemorating in just a matter of days. And Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues uh, go up to the Holy of Holies, where it would have been on the Temple Mount, where I was just a couple of weeks ago. And you see a disparity of approaches that they take that mirror what I think uh, the disparity of approaches are today to American Judaism. And my suggestion, not so subtly, is consider Rabbi Akiva. It was once that Rabban Gamliel, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Yehoshua, and Rabbi Akiva were walking along the road in the Roman Empire, and they heard the sound of multitudes of Rome from Pitulai at a distance of 120 mil. The city was so large that they were able to hear its tumult from a great distance, and the other sages began weeping, and Rabbi Akiva was laughing. They said to him, for what reason are you laughing? Rabbi Akiva said to him, and you, for what reason are you weeping? And they said to him, these Gentiles who bow to false gods and burn incense to idols dwell securely and tranquilly in this colossal city. And for us, the house of the footstool of our God, the temple is burnt. By fire, 
and shall we not weep? And Rabbi Akiva said to them, that is why I'm laughing. If for those who violate God's will, the wicked, it is so, and they are rewarded for the few good deeds they performed. For those who perform God's will, all the more so will they be rewarded. Now here is the state, the the passage related to weeping that it continues on into. The Gemara relates another incident involving those sages. On another occasion, they were ascending to Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple. When they arrived at Mount Scopus and saw the site of the temple, they rent their garments in mourning in keeping with halachic practice. When they arrived at the Temple Mount, they saw a fox that emerged from the site of the Holy of Holies. They began weeping, and Rabbi Akiva was laughing. They said to him, for what reason are you laughing? Rabbi Akiva said to them, for what reason are you weeping? They said to him, this is the place concerning which it is written, and the non-priest who approaches shall die, and now foxes walk in it? And shall we not weep? Rabbi Akiva said to him, that is why I am laughing, as it is written, when God revealed the future to the prophet Isaiah, and I will take to me faithful faithful witnesses to attest, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of Jeberechiah. Now, what is the connection between Uriah and Zechariah? He clarifies the difficulty. Uriah prophesied during the first temple period. And Zechariah prophesied during the second temple period, as he was among those who returned to Zion from Babylonia. Rather, the verse established that fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah is dependent on the fulfillment of the prophecy of Uriah, meaning there can be no return unless there is a departure, and there can be no rebuilding of a temple unless there is a destruction of the temple. In short, Rabbi Akiva sees that prophecy might actually be fulfilled inclusive of the destruction of the second temple itself. So at a moment when others were in mourning, when his colleagues were crying, he took time to laugh. Now, what is the parallel between that and the contemporary uh, period for American Jews? We spend more time and energy and money and spill more ink talking about the end of the Jewish people than one could possibly imagine. We spend all of our time decrying assimilation and intermarriage as the bogeymen of the present. But when we started measuring our own destruction 30 years ago, there were 5.5 million self-identified Jews in the United States. And today, 30 years later, there are 7.5 million self-identified Jews in the United States. We are failing at failing. Much as we think our end is nigh, we are growing in number. And then there's a correlate. We see declining affiliation rates and we create for ourselves this very simple logical chain that if people don't affiliate with synagogues, they will not marry Jews. And if people do not marry Jews, then their children will not be Jewish. And if their children are not Jewish, then their numbers will decline. But as we first saw, actually, um, in the incredible example of the Cuban Jewish community, which welcomes in uh, non-Jewish spouses with great ceremony and regalia, our numbers are actually going up because of intermarriage in a way that none of us could have forecast. 
Now, it's not to say that we should go and celebrate intermarriage in its own right. I'm not saying it's a good, but I'm certainly not saying it is bad or as bad, to be sure, as many American Jews describe it time after time. And then something else. Affiliation rates are waning. They are at their about the same level as they were 100 years ago, with a post-war peak of about 80% in the 1980s. We're down to 30%, give or take, of Jews affiliated or connected to any Jewish institution. But in contrast, Jews love being Jewish. The 2013 Pew study suggests that 94% of American Jews are proud or very proud of being Jewish. And the 2020 Pew study on the subject revealed the many different expressions of Judaism that Jews have beyond affiliation with a synagogue, beyond affiliation with a federation, even beyond affiliation with extraordinary organizations like Valley Beit Midrash. And so we are entering a period of disaffiliation, but pride in identity lack of the family structure that we might have come to the U.S. with by and large as immigrants living on the Lower East Side and other centers of Jewish life, but filled with a deep sense that we want to pass Judaism on to the next generation. And here is where my hope lies. It lies in Valley Beit Midrash. It lies in Yeshivat Hadar. It lies in Pardes coming to North America. It lies in the incredible startups that are growing to fill the niches that are not filled and serve the needs that are not served and bring forth the missions that we so very much need to reanimate the communal centers. The hypothesis of our book, and I'll go through my slides and official presentation as one does, but the core hypothesis is that most American Jewish institutions have are victims of their own success. The issue is not that they are failing, but they have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams to the point that they no longer necessarily have an obvious mission. Most synagogues were created as a safe space for an immigrant community to help them mediate identities between a Jewish identity and an American identity. Rabbis were exemplars of being both Jewish and American in all the different streams of Judaism that exist. Jewish Federation were mutual aid societies when a larger number of Jews were indigent than currently are, although there are poor Jews in America still, as is very sad. And as a result, you don't need to go to my synagogue, burgeoning though it is, to be both Jewish and American. You don't need to join the Jewish Federation to care for and support fellow Jews and Jewish causes. And so the centers of Jewish life that we have are listless because they need to renew their missions. They need missions that speak to the present moment and correspondingly inspire connection and building and co-creation. Now, I'm in very informal settings right now. I assure you that the uh, back of my office is not made of, uh, I think this is probably some sort of wood pulp. I, I typically don't have random wire cords in the back of my office. I aspire to have an office more like Rabbi Katz's actually, which looks filled with books. Uh, it, you know, the rate, the rate my room, I think uh, Rabbi Katz does very well on. Uh, and so 
where am I? I'm at a place that has renewed its mission. I'm at a Jewish summer camp. I'm at Eisner camp in the Berkshires. And Eisner in the 1950s, uh, I believe it was founded in 1958, was a place that was sort of the 2.0 version of the original Jewish summer camp. Jewish summer camps at first were similarly places where it was safe and easy to be Jewish when you were an immigrant to the United States and the wider world was hostile to you. Now Jewish summer camps are places that have reinvented themselves as centers of identity formation and leadership development, as centers to uh, support and cultivate the next generation of rabbis, cantors, educators, and lay leaders. So the brilliant and beautiful thing about summer camps is that they have found a new mission that the same institution can fulfill. And I wanna bring up one example from Paul Yedweb, who is a rabbi at, uh, in, in West Bloomfield, Michigan, one of the largest synagogues in the country. 1% of American Jews uh, are part of his synagogue. And he, said, he relates the story of Hudson's, which is a store that many of you probably have not heard of. Hudson's is a, was a big department store in downtown Detroit. And Hudson's decided that it wanted to seed a low-cost alternative. And these days, nobody knows what Hudson's is, but everyone knows the name of its successor organization. It's called Target. And so while the original organization still exists, Hudson still exists, but it is a subsidiary of its successor. And so what I would submit is that this period Yes, it is filled with loss. Yes, there are synagogues that are closing. Yes, there are Jewish federations that are struggling. Yes, there are many organizations and institutions. I would submit the entire institution of the rabbinate is struggling right now. I say as someone who is joyfully a rabbi, but struggles and toils every day as the role becomes broader and broader and broader, trying to fill more and more niches at the same time. And if we are wise and thoughtful and intentional, those of us in mainstay organizations can seed the organizations of the future or evolve into them like the Jewish camps. And those of us who are in the startup world, look at Valley Bait Midrash, not such a little startup anymore, doing amazing things to serve a key need. And organizations like Valley Bait Midrash over the next 20 and 30 years are gonna to grow to scale and become what we need to animate the Jewish future. So let me go through a few slides. And then, by the way, Alex, I know I'm supposed to talk for 40 minutes. I usually get bored talking after about seven. So if we turn this more conversational, would anyone be sad about that? Does anyone really just lust for a monologue here? Um, maybe I take five minutes and go through my slides or 10 minutes, would that be okay? Sure, that's fine. Okay, I, I have a go-to slogan as a troublemaking rabbi that rabbis ruin everything. That's sort of my hall pass for like doing troublemaking things. In this case, I think all of you have a lot to contribute and I can't wait to hear what you have to say. So I'm gonna go through my slides uh, atypically quickly. I think that it will probably be good for everybody. This is the book that Rabbi Benjamin Spratt and I co-authored, positing, that things are actually going really well for American Judaism and talking in very blunt terms 
about the inhibiting factors that are keeping us from realizing our potential. And uh, I think more important than anything we wrote, everyone loves the forward by Reverend Kaji Dosha. And so if that's where you stop, that's where you stop. So here is a quote that we love from uh, a bit, an esteemed business school professor, uh, Dr. Cantor. Everything looks like failure in the middle. There's a sense of disequilibrium in being out of balance. And at the same time, we do not know how our present story ends. And God willing, it won't end. It'll keep going for a good long while. But we presume to know the outcome and we presume it to be bad. And then this is what uh, Dr. Jonathan Sarna, the esteemed historian related, regularly American Jews here, as I did at the start of my career from a scholar at a distinguished rabbinical seminary, and as other Jews did in colonial times, and in the era of the American Revolution, and in the 19th century, and in the 20th century, that American Judaism is doomed. If there is one long living trope, it is us predicting our own demise. And unfortunately, the data do not support that conclusion. But here's some recent news story. Is intermarriage in the U.S. a second holocaust or a silent holocaust? Intermarriage, can anything be done? We obsess over what we think or project will be the bad news. And in contrast to it, 71% of children with a Jewish parent identify as Jewish. 2.8 million adults have a Jewish background. Um, by the way, that's beyond those who actively identify as Jewish. And 1.4 million adults have a Jewish affinity, meaning people who probably are connected familially or socially to Jews who have not converted and might never want to, but see it as a primary place of belonging. That's an area, by the way, that if we're smart and wise and targeted, we would do a lot of outreach to 1.4 million people who find a home with us, who might just need an invitation in order to really make it so permanently. And again, Jewish pride across generations, 94%, not conforming to the data. At the same time, we talk about all of the ways that Jews are targets of anti-Semitism. And by the way, anti-Semitism is real and it is bad. And I don't wanna be pedantic, but I'm not arguing that anti-Semitism doesn't matter. It does very much. Here's some statistics we pulled since 2015, anti-Semitic anti acts have nearly tripled, 55% of hate crimes. And we need to hold intention and complexity in study after study after study. Jews are by far the most liked religious community in the United States. How do you hold both at the same time? How do you hold Robert Putnam's data data from Pew study after Pew study in the Public Religion uh, Research Institute with that of the ADL and those who are talking of anti-Semitism. The vast majority of Americans like Jews and like Jews very much. Those who do not like us do not like us very strongly and sometimes act on it. So both are true at the same time. We tend to only reflect on half of the truth. And so we're suggesting complexity. That's the reason, by the way, also, so many people are in my conversion classes, I have to cap them at 25. And that's true in many, many other synagogues. People are curious about Judaism. People already have a Jewish affinity or a family member. People identify primarily as Jewish and want to make it official. Why? We're viewed very positively by the American mainstream. 
And so all of it is true at the same time. This is an article on anti-Semitism, the philo-Semitism. So this is where Ben Spratt and I get spicy. And Ben Spratt, by the way, senior rabbi of, of one of the leading congregations in the country, Congregation Road of Shalom on the Upper West Side, uh, has like 1,800 families, a full-time day school. He's not somebody who hates synagogues, and I'm not somebody who hates synagogues. I'm not someone who hates any Jewish institution. I think they're around or had been around for a reason, but those reasons have been ossifying over time. And so we bring up in our book, the notion of nostalgia as salvation. We often have a nostalgia and an imagination for the way that things were. And then on top of it, saying, ah, oh, we've always done it this way. We've always done this Alvino Malkina. We've always prayed in this particular way. Then we talk about the continuity crisis. And we talk about how the bogeyman is assimilation and therefore join my synagogue and fight assimilation carrying a banner that is once again quite negative, it doesn't make sense in the present context. Then we're always on the brink of annihilation. So it's a combination of nostalgia trap, a basically a continuity crisis that is not supported by the data. I was gonna say a fake continuity crisis. Let me be more precise in my words than that. Continuity crisis that the data does not indicate is a crisis at all for American Jewry. And then, focusing on anti-Semitism rather than the presence of philo-Semitism. So here's the data, by the way, on uh, philo-Semitism. We're liked more than Catholics and mainline Protestants. That's pretty cool. Jewish denomination and identity has largely been steady since 2013. This is us myth-busting. And one of the typical tropes is the only way our numbers could go up is that Orthodox Judaism is growing rapidly. You know, Orthodox Jews are all having a dozen kids apiece and their numbers are growing rapidly. Well, since 2013 to 2020, the number of Orthodox Jews or the percent of Orthodox Jews has gone from 10 to 9% in the United States. That is not actually correlated with our growth in numbers. Number of conservative, or percent of conservative Jews, 18 to 17%. No particular branch has grown. And reform, which I do worry, conflates two things, both people who are members of reform synagogues and people who are like, well, I would be reform if I were a member anywhere. That has gone up. So not to say reform is thriving institutionally, but to say reform is thriving ideologically. That's what I think uh, you could conclude. But the numbers are more or less flat across the nomination. Thank you. This is my son, Jonah, by the way. Jonah, do you want to say anything? Oh, thank you. Um, this is not what I expected, but thank you. Jonah, can I please continue talking, honey? Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, honey. I, I am at camp and, and Jonah's a camper and I bribed him with M&Ms and uh, chocolate milk and uh, TV. And let's hope that we get to continue forth accordingly. Other data points are <laughs> rabbis in the post-pandemic period. Uh, giving Zoom talks from summer camp. This is the data in terms of um, intermarriage and in terms of who feels connected Jewishly after the fact. And again, ironically, if everyone intermarried, our numbers might go up. Not to say our affiliation rates go up. Not to say those counted based on halakha as Jewish would go up, but those self-identifying as Jews would go up. I'm a reform rabbi, 
So it is no secret that I'm prioritizing self-identified Jews over Jews in a halachic practice. It was the Romans most likely who uh, initiated the standard that someone's mother determines their religion in Rome. And so I don't really feel like I need to be beholden to a long dead empire in determining who is Jewish. So I do use this data, but as someone deeply committed to pluralism, I don't wanna um, poo poo the reality that for Orthodox and conservative Jews, the data is more complicated. It is more complicated because the number of halachic Jews defined matrilineally, if you have a Jewish mother, you are Jewish, that number is probably going down. But self-identified Jews, not true. What I would say for my Orthodox and conservative friends is even if you don't find someone to be technically Jewish in your standard, if they identify as Jewish, can we at least give them a warm welcome and help them feel at home? I'm not asking you to count them in a minion. I'm asking you to say hi to them at Oneg. I'm not asking you to uh, you know, have them sign uh, uh, your ketubah. I want you to teach them Torah and welcome them into learning opportunities. And so what I would say is even for Orthodox Jews, even for conservative Jews, this data is really significant. Again, Jewish population in the US, our percentage is going up. Some of this could be counting changes, but not that much changed when it was Pew study to Pew study. We went from 2.2 to 2.4% of the United States population uh, in, uh, in the last decade, basically. And how amazing that we're, going, we're growing faster than the American population as a whole. Who would have ever thought that, given that the continuity crisis started 30 years ago and spawned a cottage industry dedicated to calculating our own destruction. And again, the numbers are going the opposite direction of a community heading the way of the shakers into non-existence. So most common reason offered by those who rarely or never attend uh, religious services is that I'm not religious. Now, here's the thing. We could bemoan this. We could really cry about this that no one's coming to services. And by the way, I love it when it's a packed shul for me and everyone gets to hear me monologue like I'm doing now and whatever. But the reality is, if I'm the best steakhouse on the planet and I'm trying to get vegetarians to show up, the issue is with my menu. That's the problem. It's not that people don't want to eat. It's that people don't like what's on the menu. By the way, that's B'Shem Omro, Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, my beloved Orthodox colleague and mentor, is the one who uses that metaphor as a vegetarian himself. You just, at the end of the day, if you're only measuring prayer, might be the wrong metric. By contrast, <clears throat> look at all these things Jews love. They love eating and cooking. They love going to historical sites. They love sharing in culture and holidays, including with non-Jews. When in diasporic history has that been the case? Not that often. How different is this from the Middle Ages? How different is this from so many other times? They love reading Jewish newspapers and articles online. They love literature. They love music. They love activism. They love film festivals. Some participate in online conversations. I think that's a pandemic fluke, but I'm not a statistician, so don't hold me to it. But basically, when we broaden the menu, Jews love doing Jewish. 
Now, this is the part that usually irritates people and makes them angry at me. And so I apologize. My goal is not to infuriate. It's to present my narrative that goes with the data. We've got fundamental issues in the way we distribute or fail to distribute power in the Jewish community that is causing us to provide steakhouse options for a bunch of vegetarians and that is creating all kinds of problematic dynamics that keep us from realizing this potential as a community in the midst of an awakening with startups like Valley Bait Midrash and a hundred others we document in the book problem, and I'm critiquing my own denomination, I'm at a URJ camp as we speak. The problem is that unions and denominations thrive when Jews are marginalized, when there are suppressed salaries and benefits, which make us uh, need our rabbinical union, like the Central Conference of American Rabbis, and when power dynamics center the few rather than the many. Basically, think pre-internet era in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, the conditions that are difficult for unions are the ones we see right now. There's a wide tent of acceptance. People like Jews. There's an open market dynamic of salaries and benefits. And power dynamics center on networks of the many. Basically, rabbis are less important than they were before because it, we could actually fulfill Moses' vision of becoming Mamlechet Kohanim, a nation of, pre, of uh, uh, priests and also a nation of prophets. Look at all these new innovative institutions springing up. These are the ones that if the reform movement is not careful, will grow to replace or at least subvert a lot of the mainstay institutions. So, so again, critiquing my own, I am a member of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. I'm a proud reformed Jew and our institutions need to work. So congregations, this is the dynamic that we see. And it results, by the way, in overpaid rabbis, at least in the reform movement. And I would submit rabbis are by far the highest paid clergy in the United States. And it is not clear to me that that is an efficient allocation of capital in the Jewish world. Both Ben Spratt and I give a large percentage of our salaries back to our congregations because we think that it is, um, if not unethical, deeply problematic to be paid as much as rabbis can be paid. We're paid like executives, but we're in the spirituality business and it skews our needs. So here's what happens. Congregations pay money to a union to have access to clergy. The biggest congregations have the most union money. Success in the denominations is defined by size of the congregation rather than those who are actually serving people the best. And you, size this, you celebrate the size of the community as a measure also of clergy success. Clergy who are most celebrated come from large congregations. Large congregations feel the most successful and the least need to change. Uh-oh, clergy and large congregations earn the most money by far. Highest paid clergy also contribute the most to their unions. Unions push for higher compensation, giving value of, to the union and more money to the union. Smaller congregations need to raise more money to attract clergy. As the number of congregations shrink, few streams of money go into the union. There are fewer jobs to fill. We're just describing uh, sort of in brief some of the dysfunction, but there are other ways. Open market pressures and urgency mean congregations break from the union, refusing to pay money. So what we're moving into, thank God, is much more of a startup landscape. 
where everyone, there is a focus, a renewed focus on lay people and lay leadership, where there is a renewed focus on startups that are centering a lot of the groups that have been disenfranchised, women, LGBTQ people, people of color, all kinds of groups and lay people as a whole, by the way. And so there are incredible things happening. I actually want to pause if I may. I could go on and talk some more. I want to get conversation and discussion. I got bored officially of my own presentation. And I think that your questions will be wonderful and animating. And suffice it to say, if I'm critiquing the status quo, because I think our institutions are intended to perpetuate themselves rather than serve uh, the vast ma the majority of American Jews who are unaffiliated, I'm self-critical. And I think that the new startups are going to change things for the better. And I think that Judaism is entering a remarkable new period of vibrancy, of lay empowerment, and of multiple ways in which one can belong. It's not all or nothing. It's not my way or no way. It is the answering of very specific wants and needs through a Jewish lens. I can go back to the presentation if there aren't questions, but I would so love to hear your ideas. Yes, Rabbi. Outstanding, and uh, well, I, actually, if Aglia wants to go first, I'm I'm fine. Aglia, I'm fine holding off. All right, are you sure? Yeah, that's fine. You go first. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm on my iPhone today, so things are a little you know like weird. But um, great ideas. <laughs> okay, this is like you've got some great ideas and everything, though. The um, question that I have is. Um, Fortunately, um, and this might not go over well with everyone, so I'm really, really sorry if it doesn't. Um, we actually are very capitalist in how we think just in general in America and everything. So my one of my concerns is that we have um, wonderful organizations, smaller organizations and everything. However, though, American history kind of always, unfortunately, ends up in the same place. The money gets involved and everyone starts to lose their minds and everything. So how do we protect um, smaller organizations from falling into that trap? I'm sorry if this offends anyone. <laughs> I don't think it, def it offends anyone. I think it's great. And by the way, this pertains to startups and newcomers as well. Um, you are describing a really serious issue and challenge, which is that this has become too much winner takes all. The big institutions compete for resources and people very well. I'd actually love to open it up both because I need to uh, provide a, a, a little bit of help for my little one. And because I'm sure there are other answers. How do we help small institutions? See, Rabbi Kate? Yeah, it's fine. Well, so Rabbi Stanton, I just want to show you my what, what I pulled here. So I'm one of the nerds that went to this uh, conference a couple weeks ago where this exact conversation had, and I'm not here to, to re replay the conference, but uh, I just want to say that I have not read the book yet. Uh, anecdotally, I've found on my personal, and I, I run, I'm at a very small congregation in East Texas, 75 families. I've been here 20 years. Um, anecdotally, everything that you said tracks because what I've learned is that uh, the movement, and I'm not here to pick on the movement, although we could do that all day, uh, has seeded, C-E-D-E, has seeded a lot of its energy and money and time away from what used to be. Um, and where the picking up, where we find picking up the slack uh, is that Jews are hungry and they're going to find uh, informal education in BBYO and in other great agencies. They're going to find Torah in Hadar, BBM, all these other things. So it's exactly what you just said. And I'm like shocked that I'm, I want to read the book now because it's very similar. And 
on a small congregational level, I don't feel it. I'm, I'm not in a big city. I don't feel it. My congregation does what I tell them to do. It's very small community oriented, but I think on a national scale, um, Jewish energy will follow Jewish entrepreneurship. That's my sense. All right, I'll be quiet. It's no, that's beautiful. By the way, my, my wife is from West Texas, Lubbock. Um, oh, okay. So I uh, would love Other to side. play some Texas Jewish geography later. Yeah. So I, I think you're spot on. And I did not attend recharging uh, Reform Judaism for one reason. I found it to be too rabbi-centric and too focused on how existing players can meet needs as opposed to focusing on the underlying needs themselves. And I'm not entirely convinced that rabbis are going to be the best entrepreneurs. This is, by the way, uh, our work, um, and this came out in August of last year, so it's a little dated, but not really, uh, is straight out of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. Um, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg contended that the third era of Jewish life, namely the one in which we are now, would be lay-led, that Jewish exhibits and museums would have more of an impact on more people than anything happening in synagogues, than anything happening in traditional institutions. And so we see that a lot of the most effective organizations are entirely lay led. And so that's the reason that I sort of challenged the underlying premise of recharging reform. It sounded like it went very well, but I don't know if I would assume the answer is sort of the existing clergy and the existing institutions. And our thesis and our hope is that what is emerging before our eyes is actually going to be incredible. I mean, highest, fabulous how it's reinvented itself. But think of the countless organizations that have sprung up. I mean, Hadar is going to have a bigger budget than any denomination in the United States. How incredible that people are centering Jewish learning. The justice organizations. Forget the Religious Action Center for just a moment, but the AJWSs of the world, they are doing so much. And the number of people that are being reached through other organizations has never ceased to amaze me. But I'm thrilled that, I mean, if recharging Reform Judaism can be a part of this multi-denominational, almost Copernican shift that we see taking place before our eyes, all the better. That's a beautiful thing. And I, I think you and I relate. I'm at a small shul in Manhattan, which is different than East Texas, but small shul biz has a lot of similarities across locales. And um, we are not the priority of our movements, much to my sadness and consternation. Well, let's play Jewish geography. Uh, Ethan. Hi, Rabbi. Uh, my fiance is also from West Texas. It's called Alpine, so we can we can play all the the Texas Jewish geography. Um, I, I know, I know. Um, I, I'm first of all, I really appreciate your discussion. Um, something that I am deeply moved by, and I think is uh, important for the future of our people to have. Um, so I'm grateful to you for bringing this discussion to our table today. Um, I want to ask you about the the menu that you provided. Um, I think in some ways that may be the most important slide that you presented to us today um, because it is solution focused. Uh, what do the people want? Um, and if I'm remembering it correctly, most of the food items on that menu uh, were in some way, shape or form 
traditional Jewish practices uh, that may or may not be offered uh, within the congregational space. So things like uh, keeping Shabbat, um, studying, doing uh, adult education, uh, you know, th those sorts of things that we think of as kind of traditional Jewish experiences. What I want to ask you is, I wonder if there is also a dessert menu uh, that is outside of that menu, um, which has offerings that are non-traditional Jewish offerings, but that are centered around wellness experiences that people in our world are already taking part of, and that maybe we as Jewish people can tap into those experiences, make them Jewish experiences uh, for the participants, and thereby give those people an opportunity to engage with their Jewishness in a uni unique way. So I'm thinking about things like uh, concerts, going to the gym, uh, working with mental health professionals, um, those sorts of things that, that I wonder if, if those could be added to the list of the menu that could help strengthen our, our peoplehood offerings. I love it. So I think what is very clear, a couple of things. I, I presented the data that Pew gave to us. So that is probably the most robust and recent data that we have about the Jewish community, aside from some rather niche studies that have come out since. Um, so 2020 data is probably the best we've got. And I think you're spot on, but I, I also wonder if some of the things that they highlighted are related to wellness and well-being. I mean, if you look at halot as a practice, yes, Jewish food is highlighted, but what did people actually mean by Jewish food? Did they mean cooking it? Did they mean sharing it? Did they mean, you know, one table and the extraordinary work that they do to bring thousands of people together around tables across the country for Shabbat. Is that the dynamic that they're describing? Um, and so I refer back to the words of Rabbi Alan Babchuk, also at Klal. He says, love the problem, not the solution. And so what I would suggest is that we start by asking people what's not working for them. Rick Warren did this while building, controversially, a very successful church in Orange County. He went door to door asking people what was keeping them from going to church. Now, we don't want them necessarily to come to synagogue, but we want them to do Jewish as a verb rather than simply a noun. And it might be worth experimenting. And what we keep observing again and again is that places that are excellent at answering a person's very niche needs winds up building community by accident. It becomes a primary center of belonging. So Road of Shalom is actually focused very much on wellness and well-being. They're very much into the positive psychology aspect and view the goal of Judaism as helping people uh, achieve a life of meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And so they are experimenting to see if that can be their unique brand in a city that is filled with synagogues. I think what we've observed in talking to a lot of synagogues is that the farther you are geographically from a Jewish population center, the more you need to have a bit of something for everyone. It needs to be big tent at a, because people need a place to go. By contrast, the more Jews there are in a location or the more potential Jews are Jewishly identified or affiliated, 
the more you need excellence in one or two or three areas and to give up trying to be everything to everyone. People don't need you to provide uh, the best in a whole bunch of things. That was in the model of the synagogue or the community center as the safe haven from a wider world that was uh, really anti-Semitic. And thank God we're not living in the Judaism or in the society that uh, our, our forebearers did 100 years ago. Um, that would have been really difficult and scary, and we would have needed a place of refuge. Instead, my community can try to be excellent at advocating for justice, at Torah learning, and at music or something like that, and leave other things to other communities to be excellent at. So I love where you're going with it. I love the hypothesis. I would say go and test it like any other hypothesis and take notes on it and see if it works. See if people show up, see if people stay, see if people give, see if people uh, bring their friends, see if people exclaim to you about how awesome it is. That's probably the most important thing to do. And what we need, if we lose our fear of failure, like no one's coming to our steakhouse, we might create a very different restaurant altogether. So I love where you're going with it, Ethan. I think your question is four in one. And so I tried to answer four in one. Uh, Aglea. Okay. Sorry, me again. Okay. So, of course. I, okay. <laughs> Just um, to follow up on Ethan, I had written in the chat that I attend um, a Jewish book club um, in meeting like once every month. Now, what we mostly read um, is fiction books, like just stuff for fun. So it's not exactly an education group or anything like that. But the way that it got started was one of my friends loves to read and said that she wanted a Jewish book club. And she started it. And I mean, we may or may not get a lot of people, but we do get people. So, you know, I mean, it does work. It can work. So wonderful. I love that. By the way, that's the case across the board. Those are springing up in so many different dimensions. The number of people who are having Shabbat dinners together, the number of people, there's such vibrancy, just not necessarily happening community wide. We found a beautiful book club. So some of the data to go to tie your question and comment with Ethan's. So what is the percentage of reformed Jews who pray more than twice a year? Something like six or 7%. And that number climbs rapidly to about 9% for conservative Jews. What is it that synagogues provide all the time? Come to Shabbat services. Uh-oh, we are the steakhouse for vegetarians. Okay, maybe we need a book club. Maybe we need a space for meditation. Maybe people want to study. There's a lot of data that shows that Jews view Judaism as a way of navigating such complexity at present in the wider world. And when so many parts of society are declining and when values are at a decline, we can be the, the, the standard bearers of it. How wonderful. But then why are we focusing on davening? And so it's literally, there's, there's an amazing conversation between Judah Magnus, the rabbi at Temple Emmanuel, and Achad Ha'am, the great Zionist thinker. And Achad Ha'am literally says to Judah Magnus, you have created the wrong institution. The institution that has sustained the Jewish people is the Beit Midrash, and you've built the Beit Tefillah. And the data shows, like a century later, not as something in that range, 
Chad Ha'am might have been right. Kind of stunning. I saw an applause sign when I think Ethan was speaking uh, from Walter Davies. No pressure, Walter. But again, always welcoming the conversation. I don't have the answers. I'm just trying to take some gutsy approaches and present some hypotheses that um, I guess Ben and I would suggest have not been presented because of all the vested interests in maintaining the status quo. Well, since you've invited me into the conversation, um, <laughs> I a lot of really great observations and uh, points of view really appreciate um, the, the data and the, the thoughts um, around that and um, how that expresses the, the dynamism, you know, that we're looking at over the past hundred years. Um, but um, uh, along the lines of um, other things that we can do communally, uh, I was expressing to a, a rabbi friend of mine uh, a while back, I was going to my daughter's Kung Fu class and watching what they're doing. And I'm the whole time I'm thinking of the Rambam, the eight chapters of the Rambam. And I'm thinking, why are we not doing this? This is so Jewish. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I get the Buju connection and all that sort of thing. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking about beyond that. I'm talking about, you know, we could actually be doing this and not just Krav Maga, you know. Um, so, yeah, great, great observations. Uh, appreciate the the time in the lecture. Of course. Uh, wonderfully said. I mean, there's so there are literally infinite possibilities, right? Like we could be focusing on theological exploration. We could be focusing on meditation. We could be focusing on Kung Fu. We could be focusing on Jewish food. We could be focusing on justice issues. We could be focusing on pluralism, intra and interreligious. We could be focusing on so many things. And so what I'm hearing from this conversation is broadening of scope. What came up for us in the writing and research process was depth, excellence in some areas. The classic is, you know, why should we have a lot of music at our services? Well, people could go to Broadway. Okay, but we need excellence, maybe not in our music, maybe our services are something we're gonna decenter, but we need excellence because Jews are allowed in the wider world. Jews are part of the mainstream. Jews are not kept out of colleges. So we need excellence in what we do decide to focus on. Here's something that I'd like to muse about aloud with all of you. Are we gonna wind up with confederations of startups? So, so Valley Beit Midrash starts to collaborate with, I don't know, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice and starts to collaborate also with uh, Hadar's Rising Song Institute. Does that wind up supplanting a denomination? And do those who ascribe to those, the three organizations, wind up finding primary senses of belonging? We have some preliminary evidence that suggests yes. And so what we wonder about is whether some of the organizations that are most successful actually grow together. People come for the great learning or the social justice or the amazing singing and they stay because they feel a sense of belonging. That belonging is not itself enough of a draw, but it's what helps people stick around. It's what gives organizations and groups staying power. And so that's something that we would suggest that we look at. And what are Jewish organizations notoriously not good at? Collaborating. What is this new startup environment that is 
genuinely coming together as an awakening with hundreds of new startups all the time. Tish PDX in Portland, Oregon, the incredible work of Valley Bait Midrash. I mean, it goes on and on and on geographically, denominationally, and otherwise. Jewish organizations are not good at collaborating. They're going to have to be if they want to thrive in this new iteration of Jewish life. David. So what is the simple uh, definition of uh, who is Jewish then in this vision? Is the simple definition you're Jewish if you self-identify as Jewish? Um, and then what are the implications, if any, for any kind of official conversion, whether reform, conservative, orthodox, or other? Uh, does that have any play or meaning? Or, or or could you look at it this way? There are eight lost tribes, uh, and they are simply finding their way home. No conversion needed. They're so just coming home. We, we presented an even more radical view that will probably not be beloved to many, but we think is important. We said, we have been describing Judaism as a noun. You can never do anything Jewish in your life, but if you have a Jewish mom, you're halakhically Jewish, right? And what we said is that there's something very tragic about a static notion of being Jewish. And so we recenter instead the verb of doing Jewish. And so we are less, we care less about the number of Jews than the number of people engaged in Jewish practices. So we actually suggest throwing the tent open still wider. By the way, there's halachic and midrashic basis. I mean, you look at the exodus from Egypt and midrash would suggest that a large number of Egyptians came along with, if not the, perhaps a, a, a plurality of the people who left Egypt were Egyptian and not Jewish. If you look at, I mean, the, the no, modern notions of conversion came about with external pressure because why would someone want to be Jewish? So they have to prove their intent or else they might become a fifth column. So what we say is that we're, we might be actually measuring the wrong variable. But even by strict notions of who is a Jew, we're not failing as an American diaspora. And wouldn't it be great if we focused on who is loving Jewish practice, who might in time want to make a permanent home here because of all that they are doing. And so we, we provided a, a problematic answer, which is we don't care. We don't care how many Jews there are or who's counting. In fact, by the way, halakhically, you're not supposed to count the number of Jews lest something horrible befall them. Um, that's one of the uh, ways that the book of Numbers is actually inverted fascinatingly through uh, halachic and rabbinic interpretation. And we think that's right. We would much rather measure behaviors, observable things. I mean, there are so many people who are not Jewish who are members of my synagogue. It makes my head spin. How wonderful that there are all these people doing Jewish. And so that's what we would put forth. And correspondingly, we think the awakening will be of people doing Jewish including many who have a Jewish affinity, but are have no intention of going to mikveh and Beit Din. Alex, should we wrap it up? By the way, I just want to say thank you all so much. What wonderful questions. You are all such serious learners. And Alex, 
final words. Thank you so much for your presentation and thank you everyone for joining and for engaging with us. Just want to let everyone know about our next class, which will be July 20th at 1 p.m. Pacific. Um, that will be listening to the heart of Genesis, Parshat Vayetze, Jacob's Ladder with um, Rabbi Leila Galberner. So we hope that you can all join us for that as well. And thank you again for being here. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.